Well, I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that at least some of you are familiar with the city of Jericho this morning. For those astute Old Testament readers, you may have heard a story or two about this place. But I doubt the footprints of the Israelites marching around the city 13 times can be still seen by the first century. The rubble of those ancient walls have been long since buried, even by the time of Jesus. No, by the time of the New Testament, Jericho was just this prominent little village, rebuilt by Herod the Great a couple miles south of where the old Jericho used to stand. The morning that Jesus likely strolled through town, Jericho was already buzzing with activity. Merchants and traders out on the streets selling and hawking their merchandise. Farmers bringing in their spring produce or livestock to market. Or just mere travelers like Jesus and his entourage this morning, simply passing through town en route to some other place. Those who called Jericho home knew that it was a place of hustle and bustle because the city lay on this major highway which had this significant fork in the road where you could either head west towards Jerusalem or head east towards the Jordan River. So there's a lot of foot traffic in town. It's no wonder then that someone like Zacchaeus would make a nice living in Jericho because there's where there's a lot of lucrative commerce and business, there's bound to be a lot of taxes. The Romans placed heavy taxes on the regions they subjugated, taking a substantial percentage of whatever goods and food were bought and sold. And they also charged significant tolls on people that traveled through their lands. And Jericho was one of the greatest taxation centers in all of Palestine, a major hub strategically set up by the Roman Empire to easily get a share to fill Caesar's piggy bank off this major trade route. Well, I'm going to go out on another limb and assume you don't need me to explain to you what taxes are. But the government back then likely couldn't rely on TurboTax or H&R Block to garner their revenue. No, the Romans chose a more grassroots approach for accumulating their tribute. Because you see, in any given area in the empire, the Romans contracted local entrepreneurs who would collect the taxes. And for the sake of efficiency, these entrepreneurs would then employ other people to do the legwork and collect the taxes from everybody else, and they'd make a small percentage off of each of their employees. If this sounds sort of like a sort of an elaborate pyramid scheme, well, it kind of was, and it was ripe with abuse. Because you see, these tax collectors would often collect more than the amount they were supposed to to turn over to the Romans. Because they overcharged people, they extorted people really, especially the poor, and they would be putting on these needless additional fees on top of what the Romans demanded, and then they would pocket the surplus. And the Romans would turn a blind eye to this because as long as they got their share, they just didn't care. And in Palestine, it was no different. Or at least that's how it was perceived by everybody. Because if you've ever read the Gospels, you may notice that there is one class of people, one profession that consistently gets a bad rap among everybody else, and that's the tax collectors. Right behind the Romans, in the minds of everybody, were the tax collectors, even though they were their fellow Jews. Because they considered tax collectors to be traitors and crooks. Because you see, they were doing Romans' dirty work. They were essentially renegades and turncoats. They were opting to side with the enemy as opposed to their own countrymen. And then when they came to collect, it was a reminder of their Gentile pagan overlords. So there's strike one. 
And plus, everybody knew that they were crooks. Everyone knew the scam. Everyone knew they were taking money that they shouldn't because they were taking what was skimping off the top of what actually working class people met, and they didn't like it one bit. And that's about strike two. And I'm going to go on a limb and guess you wouldn't like them either. It seemed only right to lump tax collectors with sinners, as folks often did, because they were the worst kind of sinners. Getting rich at the expense of others, conspiring with known villains, cheating in life. They deserved all the angry and annoyed stares they got as they strolled through town or at the grocery store. They deserved all the gossip and the slander behind their backs. They deserved to be ostracized by practically everyone like leopards. They had no friends. And well, poor old Zacchaeus. Not only in the eyes of everyone does he swing for the fences and miss twice, but he actually strikes out a third time. Because Luke says he's the kingpin of this entire extortion racket happening in Jericho. Interestingly, the actual Greek term chief tax collector appears nowhere else in Greek literature. It's really unprecedented. But from what we can tell, it's clear that Zacchaeus is the one at the top of the ladder. The one at the proverbial, top of the proverbial food chain. He's the local entrepreneur under contract with Rome. He's the one responsible for hiring all those actual tax collectors who gathered the monies. And he's the one who's profiting the most because he gets a cut. He gets a percentage off of every commission that his lackeys make. So not only do his cronies get out or cut, every, cut off everybody, but Zacchaeus gets a cut off of everybody as well. Everyone has to pay the Zacchaeus fee. And he's living a life of luxury or as much as anyone can in those days. And I have to wonder, maybe or not, Levi, or also known as Matthew, one wonders if he knew him. Because back in the day when Matthew was working for the IRS before Jesus called him to be a disciple, maybe they swam in the same circles, and they knew the same people. Maybe they went to the same conferences, and as they're walking through town that day, maybe Matthew thinks to himself, man, this is Zacchaeus' territory. Zacchaeus is the ringleader. He's at the top of the pyramid scheme which makes him the worst of them all. The Apostle Paul believed himself to be the worst sinners, the worst of them all. Zacchaeus might be right up there with them in the eyes of everyone in Jericho. That's why some scholars actually think this is why he was a wee little man and a wee little man was he. I'm going to go out of limb and guess when you think of Zacchaeus, you think of that little nursery rhyme, don't you? If you attended Sunday school back in the day, you heard that little song about Zacchaeus. But what's interesting is that some scholars think that Zacchaeus' shortness of stature may not be simply that he was physically short, rather that he was morally, if not spiritually, coming up short. Because in the minds of the ancient readers, they equated as a clue or a hint to someone's spirituality their physical traits, that it was like a mirror of one's condition, that Zacchaeus is a morally bankrupt person because he's short. And I'm not saying that that's true, because nowadays we know that not to be true, but I'm saying that's just how they thought back then. Jesus confronts this time after time. A little plug for our Bible study on Monday nights. In John chapter 9, folks wonder who's responsible for a man being blind. They ask, is it the man or is it the parents? Jesus says, neither. So we know it's not true. But the eyes of everyone, everyone thinks that Zacchaeus just doesn't measure up morally or ethically to what God has laid out in the law. So surely everyone thought he was a wee little man in the eyes of God. But we're told whatever the case, we find public enemy number one, this wee little man, the worst of all kinds of sinners, to borrow Paul's terminology, 
quite literally going out on a limb this morning because Luke says he was trying to get a look at Jesus, which is remarkable when you really think about it because as far as the Gospel of Luke is concerned, a wealthy rich guy is the last person you'd think would be interested in Jesus and the kingdom of heaven. If you just read Luke's Gospel, we're told a story about a rich guy and Lazarus, and the rich guy goes to Hades and is tortured, and the Lazarus goes to Abraham's bosom, right? Or if you flip over to just the last chapter where we're introduced to a guy known as the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and is told the one thing that's keeping him from experiencing eternal life, and that's liquidating his assets and giving it all to the poor. And he just can't bring himself to do it, which leaves him very sad. And then Jesus remarks to his disciples, and this is really interesting. He says how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. And in a very literal sense, I guess, we have a camel maybe looking to see if he could just somehow squeeze through that eye of a needle this morning. At least that's what Luke wants us to think. We're not told how Zacchaeus became familiar with Jesus. Presumably he heard something about Jesus through the grapevine. Word travels fast in those days. Tall tales by word of mouth about this guy who can heal any disease, a guy who multiplies food by the thousands, a guy who cleanses lepers, a guy who raises people from the dead. And this is what excited Zacchaeus the most. He reportedly, get this, not only hangs out with and dines with tax collectors, he even called one of them to be his disciple. And you want to know the best news of all for Zacchaeus this morning is that word on the street is that Jesus is coming through Jericho today. So whatever the case, Zacchaeus is determined to put all those rumors to bed. He wants to see if Jesus is all that he's cracked up to be. Because this Jesus of Nazareth just sounds too good to be true. And the only problem is everyone else had the same idea. It's like when you go to Memorial Stadium early to get a good parking spot. Everyone else has the same idea. The masses have gathered to see Jesus as well. Word has gotten out of Jesus' arrival in Jericho and his procession through the city has garnered everyone's attention. They're halting traffic and they're forcing businesses to shut down early. They're taking their kids out of school early to witness Jesus. And yet this is not the worst of Zacchaeus' problems because need we forget, he is a wee little man and a wee little man was he. Luke says he's just too short to see over the crowd. He's unable to see Jesus over top the sea of people. And one imagines that Zacchaeus must have gone into a panic because this is his once-in-a-lifetime chance to see the Jesus of Nazareth in person, in the flesh, and he wasn't about to let this opportunity just slip through his fingers. I got to say, friends, I can kind of see where Zacchaeus is coming with from this morning. I'm, I'm not sure if you heard, but a little over a month ago, I got to go to a little light scrimmage between the Chicago Bears and the Kansas City Chiefs. It's no big deal or anything. And for those wondering, uh, the Germans get to experience that today. Um, My cross the bear, I'm not watching. But before the game, my friend Cole and I, we were waiting outside the stadium. And we noticed this group of people that were huddled by a fence overlooking this underground tunnel into the stadium. And as we got a little closer, everyone was huddled around this fence. They were huddled around trees. The police had set up a barrier. They had their phones out over their heads because they're trying to see what's going in. And it turns out this is the tunnel that the coaches and the players entered. 
And everyone was just trying to get a glimpse of a player to see if we could see who they were. And so as Cole and I stood there, quite literally almost climbing a tree, which is kind of funny, um, we saw Taylor Swift's boyfriend walk in. <laughs> Look at that. That's him. But unlike T-Swizzle, this Taylor wanted to see somebody else. It was one of the main reasons I wanted to go to the game. I wanted to see with my own eyes in the flesh the defending NFL MVP and Super Bowl MVP, the greatest quarterback of all time, Patrick Mahomes. Take a look at this. Look at this. I also have a little bit of a video you can play. This is, we had to go right down to the edge of the field. Can you play the next video by possibly? Look at that. He's right there. Look at that right there. I was so close, friends. And I can now tell my grandchildren, Grandpa saw Patrick Mahomes play live once. Look at that. Look at that. <laughs> All right, that's good. I'll, I'll, I'll watch Patrick later. I'll watch Patrick later. Now I realize, and I'm going out on a limb, but... I think I get how Zacchaeus is feeling a bit this morning to see Jesus. That this is his one chance. This is his only chance to see Jesus. And he's got to make it count. Not that he expected to talk with Jesus or even interact with Jesus. He just wanted to get a glimpse of Jesus. He just wanted to get a glance at Jesus. And that was just enough. This split second in time that he could just hold on to, that he could tell his friends, his neighbors, his grandkids, hey, Grandpa saw Jesus come through, came through town. And I saw him with my own eyes. And Zacchaeus isn't willing to miss this, friends. So seeing how he couldn't just push his way through the crowd or see over top of them, desperate times call for desperate measures, and Zacchaeus hatches a clever plan. He spots in the distance a sycamore fig tree ahead of Jesus' little parade. A sycamore fig tree is comparable to a small oak tree. It was the perfect vantage point. And Zacchaeus figures... If he could just manage to just run ahead of the sea of people, and he could just quickly climb the tree as high as he could, he could have a shot at seeing Jesus this morning. Now, for a lot of us, running and climbing trees isn't something we would consider embarrassing. Child's play, but not humiliating. We, well, back in Zacchaeus' day, in the ancient world, it was actually considered really undignified for a grown man to run, let alone climb a tree. This is why if you read the story of the prodigal son, when the father sees the son, lost son from afar and he runs out to greet him, this is the shocking part of the story because Middle Eastern men in the first century just didn't run. So can you imagine the crowds? The same people Zacchaeus has ripped off for years, witnessing Zacchaeus execute his master plan. Can you picture in their mind the inner glee and delightful satisfaction as they watch this little old tax collector, their neighborhood nemesis, running and climbing a tree just because he couldn't get over the crowd? They must have been laughing to themselves. They must have thought this was the best moment of their lives to see what Zacchaeus is doing. But none of that, friends, phases Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was willing to go out on a limb, literally willing to look ridiculous if it means that he could see Jesus. All that matters to him is seeing Jesus, his reputation and his status and his power and his appearance. None of that matters if he just gets a glimpse of the Savior. 
And I love how Helmut Thielet captured this moment. He says, people usually tremble before this guy. Seeing him sitting on a tree certainly must have given this crowd a fiendish delight. But Zacchaeus takes it. And his feverish excitement over that man from Nazareth is so great that he forgets his inhibitions. Zacchaeus is a seeker. And he seeks with such a passion that he forgets himself. Thoughts about the consequences of his act, the possible curse of lunacy, and the loss of reputation and authority simply didn't occur to him. Because for Zacchaeus, Jesus was worth the risk. He was worth looking like a fool. It's worth it to people like Zacchaeus who are willing to sell everything to buy that field if that's where the treasure they found is what they're looking for. It's worth it for them to buy that pearl once they've discovered its great worth by selling everything they have. Folks like Zacchaeus don't count the cost. They only care about the person, and that's Jesus. Jesus himself becomes the treasure, and he's worth it. It pays to climb a tree and do the unusual if that's the only way to obtain that treasure, friends. The apple of Zacchaeus' eye. But little did Zacchaeus realize someone else was doing the same exact thing. One wonders how Zacchaeus was perched in that, how long he was perched in that sycamore tree. Luke or the song doesn't tell us. But eventually Jesus arrives at the sycamore fig tree and he looks up at Zacchaeus. And I like to imagine the entire parade stops as Jesus does this. Everyone halts, perhaps some holding their breaths, perhaps some holding in laughter as they wait for Jesus' next move. Jesus does the unexpected. He doesn't chastise or condemn Zacchaeus for being a tax collector. Did you notice that? Perhaps some are wanting him to do that, to pronounce judgment on him, to publicly expose Zacchaeus, the sinner that he is, but Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus also doesn't ridicule Zacchaeus for being in that tree, the elephant in the room, the thing likely everyone is thinking. But no, what does Jesus do? He just simply says, Zacchaeus, hurry on down here, for I must stay at your house today. And it's in this split second the miracle of the story is revealed. One that we so many times gloss over is that Jesus knows him. All this time, we thought Zacchaeus was looking for Jesus. No, no, no. Jesus was looking for Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus wasn't the only one searching for someone that day because Jesus already knows Zacchaeus. Nowhere does it indicate how he knows his name, but that's besides the point because Jesus knows a lot of stuff because Jesus is God. Never in Zacchaeus' wildest dreams would the famous Jesus of Nazareth notice him, let alone know his name. All Zacchaeus was hoping for was a better glimpse of who Jesus was. Never did he imagine that all along Jesus was hoping to get to meet him. What matters is that Jesus is looking for a relationship with Zacchaeus. Jesus stopped for a single person. Jesus wants Zacchaeus to notice him, and it's why he wants Zacchaeus to come down quickly. It's also why Jesus invites himself over to Zacchaeus' house. For some of us, this seems a tad strange, if it's not a tad rude, that Jesus just invited himself over to someone's house. But there was a different etiquette back then. They viewed hospitality different back then. Because that's not how Zacchaeus views the situation. Jesus is doing two things by wanting to stay in Zacchaeus' house. One is he wants to stay at Zacchaeus' house, and this reveals that Jesus accepts him. Jesus doesn't care that Zacchaeus is the worst of sinners, friends. 
He does not matter in his eyes. Jesus accepts Zacchaeus despite who he was, which would have stunned everybody. But the other thing is, for this guy going out on a limb to get a glimpse of Jesus, he wants, he now gets to meet him face to face, not temporarily, but for an extended period of time, not temporarily on the street, but in the intimacy and the nearness and the closeness of his home. Because Jesus doesn't settle for a shallow acquaintance level relationship. Jesus wants to go deeper and further with Zacchaeus while simultaneously allowing Zacchaeus an opportunity to go deeper and further with him. And what happened then? Well, in Jericho, they say, that tax collector's small heart grew three sizes that day. We see when Zacchaeus responds and cooperates with Jesus' invitation, going deeper in a relationship with Jesus, something remarkable happens. Surely but surely a metamorphosis, a transformation, takes place in Zacchaeus, almost as if a new Zacchaeus emerges. And with a pep in his step, with great excitement and joy, Luke says, old Ebenezer Zacchaeus does the unpredictable. In a startling change, it transforms him from a perceived Scrooged into a radically generous person. Zacchaeus goes above and beyond and restoring people he has previously defrauded by giving half of his possessions to the poor and repaying people he's defrauded four times more than he owes. Normally, you'd only pay 20%, less if you admitted to it, but Zacchaeus ignores all of that and goes far and beyond what the Old Testament required for restitution. So now don't get mesmerized on what Zacchaeus is doing here, but notice his eagerness to do what is right which is what Luke wants you to see. Because Jesus told us there was a rich ruler who, who gave his possessions to the poor and then comes to follow him, but there was another rich ruler who was unable to do that. Yet wealthy Zacchaeus, without even having to be asked by Jesus to do this, voluntarily loosens his grip on his possessions and promises to give them to the poor. Zacchaeus refuses to do what Jesus worried his disciples would do, and that's serve two masters. He'd be devoted to his money or possession and despise God, love one and hate the other. But having met the master, friends, having been touched by the master, Zacchaeus does what Jesus told the rich young ruler to do. Store up treasures in heaven versus on earth, showing that his heart is where his treasure is. Zacchaeus exemplifies what a wealthy Jesus follower ought to do with their money and possessions, and that's share generously and steward wisely. I know he's a Methodist, but John Wesley famously once said <laughs> about money that you can earn all you can, that you should save all you can, and give all you can. Because he recognized that money isn't the problem, it's what you do with the money that matters. Zacchaeus isn't selling everything to receive praise or love from Jesus. Rather, Zacchaeus recognizes after being in an intimate relationship with Jesus through showing hospitality to Jesus that he ought to show more loyalty to Jesus than his stuff. That his attitude towards his possessions was an outward sign of this inward transformation. That Zacchaeus realizes that a love for God is expressed towards love of neighbor. That they go hand in hand. And for Zacchaeus, a man of privilege and wealth and means, for him to worship and honor God, that meant using those resources for the love of others. That was what Zacchaeus needed to do. And if there's any doubt that Zacchaeus meant what he said, just look at his pocketbook. 
And so in response, Jesus says, salvation has come to this house today for this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham. My New Testament professor, uh, professor Dr. Andrew Ardeberry, he makes this statement about, tries to clarify what Jesus is trying to say. And he takes us back to the scene in Genesis 19. In Genesis 19, Abraham also eagerly and enthusiastically showed hospitality to three travelers. Have you ever heard this story? And they were mere strangers that were passing by. In reality, we know that they actually represent God himself. And in the process in this story, Abraham defines hospitality and worship to God by welcoming these strangers into his home. Zacchaeus, in faith, Jesus is saying, now resembles Abraham perhaps for the first time in his life, that his actions reveal him to be a true descendant of Abraham, that he can receive God's blessing, that he is, this is what Jesus' mission was all along, that the rich and the rejected can become sons of Abraham. But what's more interesting, if you stay in that story in Genesis, is that these three travelers, they reveal that Sarah's going to have a child. And Sarah overhears this, and if you remember the story, she promptly laughs. And we hear the first iteration of this phrase in Genesis 18, 14, for nothing will be impossible with God. The angel Gabriel will say the same thing when, she, when he announces the miraculous birth of Jesus to Mary. Jesus himself will use a variation of that phrase after he says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich guy to go into the kingdom of God. Jesus says, in response, his disciples ask, Who then can be saved? Jesus says, what is impossible with man is possible with God. I don't think there's a coincidence that the fulfillment of that prediction appears to take place precisely when Jesus is transferring a different kind of birth and a different kind of son of Abraham. Not a physical birth, not a virgin birth, but a spiritual rebirth of a child of God. A child, John will say, born not of natural descent, not of human decision, but of born of God. One of my favorite C.S. Lewis's quotes is, God became man to turn creatures into sons, not simply to be better men of the old kind, but to produce a different new kind of man. We see no one is beyond God's work of recreation, that no one is beyond redemption, that he leaves the 99 for the one to make sure that none shall perish but have eternal life. No one is too sinful for Jesus to rescue and transform. And as one commentator put it, the crowd that had written off Zacchaeus Jesus does not write off those who remain open to God. Because Jesus sees potential in Zacchaeus when no one else does. And we see Jesus do something that he claimed only God could do. Something that's impossible for humans, but only possible for God. That God could lead a rich man to the kingdom of heaven. And friends, we witness in this story a camel pass through the eye of a needle. Because I guess all things are actually possible with God. Fred Craddock says, Jesus' visit in Zacchaeus' house was not a delay or a detour on his journey to Jerusalem. This was and is the very purpose of his journey, that the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. I'm going to go out on a limb this morning and suggest that Jesus ain't through seeking and saving the Zacchaeuses of this world. Jesus hasn't changed since that stroll through Jericho, and neither has his attitude towards sinners like Zacchaeus. But the question is, are the Zacchaeuses still willing to go out on a limb and look for Jesus and walk with him and invite them into their home? 
I'm convinced Jesus still sees potentials in Zacchaeus's, even if they or others can't see it in themselves. And maybe for you this morning, that's where you're at. Are you willing to go out on a limb for Jesus if that means that you'll come in contact with him? Maybe that means you need to do something a little ridiculous, something a little unordinary, something that's out of your routine. What does it take for you to reach and see Jesus? Because, friends, I can guarantee you, he already sees you and he's already coming your direction. Maybe for you this morning, you've been with Jesus a long time. Maybe he's been in your home a long time, been in your life a long time. Perhaps, what does that transformation look like for you? For Zacchaeus, his transformation, because of who he was and because of his profession, it was to be generous with his money. That may be you. That may be something else for you. What does it mean for you to take up your cross and follow him? Because I think that was Zacchaeus' cross to bear. Dallas Willard says, discipleship is the process of becoming who Jesus would be if he were you. What does that look like for you? What does it look like for you to slowly be transformed by Jesus? I love, again, Helmut Thielek puts it this way. When Jesus steps into a life, he starts this chain reaction that goes on and on, that no one leaves the encounter with Jesus Christ the same as when they came. For Jesus is the great transformer, and with Jesus, we go from one transformation to another. It's here at the end of the story that we realize that this story about a wee little man and a wee little man was he is no less marvelous or miraculous than any of the healings recorded in the gospel. To be sure, when Zacchaeus walked out of his house that day, even with his head held high, he was no cubit taller than when he had entered it. But friends, the spiritual healing was real nonetheless. The cure had begun. What does that look like for you today? What does that look like for you to maybe just go out on a limb to see the Savior that sees you and has come in your direction?